Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Phineas. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Hadi. We're very excited to learn about your company and how you grew it to get your first 100 paying customer. But before we dive deeper, tell us a little bit about your value proposition and your business model. How does Viva work? For sure. So some context for the folks listening. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Viva. We help execs 10x their productivity through a combination of remote executive assistant talent, technology, and techniques. We work primarily with C-level and VP-level execs at U.S. startups, anywhere series A through C. So companies like Notion, Apollo, Hasura, Actuate, um, the like. And then also as part of our social mission, we hire women in Latin America to provide them with meaningful opportunities. In terms of business model, Hadi, what we do is we hire folks. So we pick the top 1% of women in Latin America, Central and South. You know, we usually go through a, a strenuous process that involves multiple steps to test all the key things that we're looking for. We train them through an eight-week in-house program. And then step number three is we match based on the requirements that our customer is potentially looking for. And then four is we augment the experience, right? So after that matching happens, we manage everything in the background, like payroll, coaching, upskilling, anything that could potentially come into the way that that could slow down the process of delegation for the end user. So that's a little bit about us and our business model. Amazing. So if I'm a CEO listening to this, how do you 10x my productivity? What do you define as productivity and what do you define as 10x? Yeah, great question. So... One of the reasons a lot of startups die is because of poor leadership. And I think sometimes it's very easy to get caught up in the minutia of the day-to-day. You're doing admin, you're doing logistical work that really shouldn't be on your plate instead of focusing on strategic work, whether you're pre-Series A, whatever, whatever stage you're at. And the challenge with that is you get caught up and bogged down with a lot of different things. So the challenge isn't, you know, with a problem that somebody's working on. It's more so how startup executives are working. And that was the thing that we were fascinated by as we were kind of exploring this problem space. And, you know, one of the most common ways is people have support, right? Whether that's an executive assistant, chief of staff, you know, whatever the case might be. And I think that only solves a portion of the problem. And having been in this space for two and a half years now, we've realized that, you know, just finding typical recruiting agencies, they'll find the person for you, but that's only a part of the problem. The next part is making sure they get onboarded well, they're trained, they move quickly, you're resolving any sort of issues. And then the other half of the problem is from the executive side of you. Are they using the right tech, things like superhuman notion to stay organized, to move quickly through their inbox, to you know be prepared for their meetings? And then the techniques is, are they compartmentalizing, prioritizing, and delegating the right things, right? So you're not only giving them the right support, you're giving them the technology, and then you're also changing the way that they work. And when you combine all three of those things, that's when you get drastically different results than just having an executive assistant. Amazing. You're basically in a two-sided marketplace. At one end, you have to vet and find the right talent so that on the second side, your client is happy because you're promising them 10x. So which do you prioritize first when you start your business? Yeah, it's a great problem. It's I think with any sort of pseudo marketplace, it's always the chicken and the egg problem. 
you're trying to figure out, should you prioritize hiring talent? Should you prioritize the customers? I think the way that our model is different than most companies is we actually pre-hire everyone. And so by pre-hiring, we take on that risk of understanding if this person's going to be a great analyst is what we call them, understanding if this person is going to be a great analyst or not. And that's pretty evident through our training program, right? Our eight-week training program that they go through. And then by the time we actually have a conversation with the customer, we are already well aware and confident in the analyst's abilities because of the fact that we've had so much time and experience with them. Now we understand, you know, where are they strong? Where could they be a little bit better? And then based on what the customer is telling us, then we can make sure that we make the appropriate match. So for us, I think it starts with the talent side of things, right? Making sure that like, you know, we have really strong folks before we even go out to market. And then I think, you know, you're constantly playing like this seesaw game back and forth. You're hiring folks and then you're making sure that you're going out to market and trying to create as much predictability as possible on both sides of the equation. And eventually you just keep scaling both sides of that seesaw. Amazing. So when you look at the client side, how do you build trust? Because this is quite important. If I'm coming to you for such a service, I need to know who's behind Viva. So how do you build trust with me as a client versus me going out and finding a virtual analyst myself? Yeah, I think there are you know, a lot of different ways that we can do this. I think at the onset, even just understanding one of the biggest ways I think is because our focus on our customer base is so narrow, I think that's one big piece that really helps us, right? Saying, you know, we help C-suite and VP level, you know, series A through C executives is focused and it could be even more focused than that. But understanding what that, you know, how startups operate, what that ecosystem is like, and just having a really strong focus on who is our core customer and what kind of companies do they operate at, understanding what their workflows are like, what that experience is like, what they're looking for. That piece, you know, really does raise eyebrows right away. And people are like, well, okay, this makes sense, right? They understand, you know, what my life is like. And then from there, it's about, you know, making sure that you're building trust on the caliber of the talent. So telling them a little bit more details about the vetting and the recruiting process, right? What's involved in the training process? What happens in, in the matching process, right? And then how do we augment that experience? And then at the end of the day, you know, you try to make it low risk, right? So you say, hey, no worries if this doesn't work, right? We try to make it as low risk as possible to engage and really just get a feel for whether or not this is something that will work for them. 99% of the time that's worked out and, you know, we're confident in our ability to, do, to deliver because we're so hyper-focused on making sure that time to value they see within 24 hours, we promise a week at most. That's great. So the show is about the first 100. Tell us a little bit about your early acquisition strategies that worked for you. Yeah, for sure. So we're in the mid-market sales space, right? Understanding these folks with that angle. I think there's a couple of different key learnings, right? The first one, obviously, and I think every founder can relate to this, it's hard, right? Especially the first, you know, five, maybe even 10 are, are very difficult. There's a lot that I think some folks can underestimate when it comes to how much of an impact having a strong brand, established images, how much time and iteration it takes to come up with the right messaging, even if you do have an amazing product. Every time I talk to entrepreneurs early in their journey, I kind of say, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to persevere and have patience to keep going because you're building the different marketing collaterals. You're building your, your RevOps team, right? That can help do an analysis on you know what's working, what's not. You're building that ICP, that persona, that profile. And things get easier over time from an acquisition standpoint, as you build your brand, as you build trust with your customers, and even simple things like doing a website rehaul, which we just did recently. 
has a huge impact right on the outside world, like recruiting customers, media perception from everyone. And I think just understanding that these things will just take time and naturally, you know, you have to focus on making sure that the value that you're delivering to customers is really, really strong rather than focusing too aggressively on acquisition too soon, I think is one of the big things that we learned along the way. And then after a certain point, you know, you start seeing that the wheels are spinning, things are going in the right direction and you want to double down. I think then you have like three different options, right? Increasing your deal velocity, increasing the deal size or increasing add-ons or new features, right? To try to, to continue growing revenue faster. So those are a couple of the different things that we've done and we focused on to help acquire our customers. Did you do anything early on that was not scalable, but was important for you to get the early clients? Yeah, I think when we were first starting, we're speaking to a lot of our mentors around the idea and just like floating the idea with people. One of them was actually looking for uh, an executive assistant at the time. And funny enough, he's still a customer of ours, of ours. So longest lifetime value, but just having conversations with folks, call it networking, if you will, just to kind of understand like a little bit more about the problem at the onset and doing those things between myself and my co-founder, right? Today, obviously, you know, we can't, dedicate that amount of time to having those early conversations anymore. Obviously, we'll still talk to customers, but now we have a team to kind of support us along the way and make sure that we're capturing these insights and sharing it with the rest of the team. Amazing. If you had a $25,000 marketing budget per month, where would you spend it today? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I've, you know, funny, I've been thinking about marketing quite a bit these past couple of weeks. I think there's a lot of heat in the market on paid marketing. I think, you know, with LinkedIn and with Google and it, you see this a lot, right? Even I think Mutiny had a post around this where, you know, $19 out of 20, 19, every $19 that's spent out of the 20, you know, you don't know what kind of value they're driving, right? And if your paid ads are working or not and et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's this pressure, right? On quarterly performance, quarter over quarter, right? You got to show some sort of results and, one of the biggest challenges with marketing is that it takes several months before you see anything grandiose because it compounds so well. And I think the more I think about the compounding, the place where I would make big bets, and I think we're also thinking about is when it comes to content, can you build out you know, a blog with meaningful insight for the customers that you have, right? Topics that are important and interesting to them that relate to what you're doing. And you know, just double down on that, right? Have a content team and aggressively start building out content because you don't really see the results of SEO until six plus months afterwards, right? Until you start seeing like increased traffic and volume on your website. That's more organic, right? At that point, people are searching for those terms and they're trying to find resources or answers to their problems that you now have answers to on your website, on your blog. And that in return drives potential customers. And there's there's a lot of examples of this, of people who have done this well, but the challenge is, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of founders don't take this route is it takes a lot of time before you see any initial results. So it could look like you're not even heading in the right direction for like six plus months. And I think a lot of folks are scared to make that long of a bet, but I think ultimately that's what's going to help a lot of brands win in 2023. The other big thing I, I think a lot of founders aren't doubling down on is, you know, just being more present and active, not with their company 
account, but with their personal accounts on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And this is a place where we're making a lot of investment, not just time, energy, money, and just building a whole team around it to help manage that process and really drive more visibility on our brand, right? You see a ton of, I guess you could call them LinkedIn influencers. There's still so much space there in terms of you know the value that you could add. The way that Twitter and LinkedIn work, I, I would say are a little bit different, but there's so much opportunity there. And then I think the last piece is, I'd probably use a piece of that budget also towards email marketing. If there are big list of leads that you're nurturing. I'm sure there are at, at any given point, right? You may have heard about the stat, right? 90% of the leads in the market aren't looking for your solution at that given point in time. It's only 10%, right? And it might even be less. And so a lot of times we place a huge emphasis on capturing that 10% and people double down on their sales team and they do aggressive hiring, they push because it's immediate and you can see those results. But the majority of your revenue ultimately, I think, is going to come from the other 90%, right, that aren't ready to buy at that time. But if you educate them, if you continue nurturing them, a series of emails of other platforms that you're distributing that content to in a curated way that's thoughtful and doesn't you know, feel like spam, and, and especially with the inbox overload that we have in today's day and age, those are probably the three big areas that I think folks should be making a bet on versus uh, the paid ad space. What user acquisition strategy have you tried that did not work for you? Hmm. Interesting question. So something that comes to mind is cold calling, actually. Funny enough, we tried cold calling for, I want to say, a couple months. And maybe we just weren't approaching it the right way. But I think, you know, we had a lot of conversations. We had a lot of connections. And we just realized, I think maybe it was the target persona that we were after. Um, they weren't as receptive to getting as many meetings or taking a meeting from a cold call. And I think we could be wrong, right? We might've done this experiment wrong, but I, after having done it for a couple months, this is something where we kind of just kind of pressed pause and said, okay, like we've tried this for a little bit now. It's not really working. Whereas in comparison, we tried cold email and cold email seems to be working quite well. You know, it seems to be more tactful and easier for us to scale along the way. And it's actually been a big driver of user acquisition for us. If we double click on the last growth hack you mentioned, which is called emailing, what yeah. advice would you give someone who's is similar in, in your situation? They're not well connected. They have either to cold core or cold email. How can they increase their chances of uh, getting people to interact with their email? Yeah. I always say every cold email boils down to two things. The first is the audience that you're sending your email to. The second is the copy, right? Or the message. And so at any point in time, the only two variables you should be adjusting are one of those two until eventually, you know, quote unquote, you strike gold, you find the right copy that works for the right people. And I think those are the two variables that you want to have in your mind as you continue to change things right now, there's never going to be a right answer. It's kind of like a process of deduction. So you kind of just start somewhere based on your best gut intuition in terms of like, okay, who is our target persona or who am I trying to email? And then making sure that the email that you're sending is short, right? It's valuable. It's action oriented. And there's a clear call to action. You know, a simple framework that you could use is call it context, value, call to action. Context at the very beginning is a quick sentence on why you're reaching out. The value is, you know, your pitch or where you help people. And then the call to action is it could either be a soft call to action or a hard call to action. Soft call to actions are things like, hey, do you want to take a look at our one pager? Hard call to action is like, hey, Javi, you know, do you have 30 minutes to chat with us? 
next Tuesday or Wednesday. And you have to start somewhere. You begin experimenting. You know, you let some of these experiments run. And I think every experiment is different. But usually my gut check on numbers is every 100 emails that you send is statistically significant enough to tell you whether or not you're heading in the right direction. So whether you're measuring reply rates, whether you're measuring opening rates, whether you're measuring if it's even hitting the inbox or if it's ending up in spam, you know, if you've sent about a hundred emails, that's usually a good sign to tell you, okay, I now need to make another change and continue modifying and iterating on my campaign. And I think the same applies to almost every single growth concept that you have as you're building a startup. Cold email is just one example of that, but the statistically significant number changes as you try different things, right? I probably, you might not want to try a hundred things with a hundred different customers. Maybe you can, you know, you have a statistically significant view on something with 10 customers, right? Or even 15 customers. And that might prove just as effective. It's lonely at the top as a CEO. What are your biggest insecurities as a leader? Good question. I think there's always this paranoia that we're not doing enough, that we haven't pushed the needle far enough, that we aren't growing fast enough. And I'm constantly thinking about these things, even though we're able to hit our targets, to hit our goals, to you know, make progress every single year. And we've done well, even this year, right? We're on track to 3X, past year we 8X. So we're definitely making significant progress, but I think there's always that sense of like, are we moving fast enough? Could we be doing more? If so, what could we be doing? So there are like, I put them in two buckets. There are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns, right? The known unknowns we're aware of, right? Here are the gaps in my existing experience where I think we could get help. My gaps are my co-founders' uh, gaps. Those we try to solve, right? Speaking to advisors, mentors, all kinds of stuff, reading blogs, YC has a bunch of good content, all that kind of stuff. The second is the unknown unknowns. And those are the things that it's easy to kind of get lost in a, like a downward spiral of negative thoughts around, are we doing something we don't even know or we're not aware of? And I think we think about those, what could potentially be a, an unknown unknown, but honestly, a lot of the times you you don't know what they are until, or you don't even uncover them until like a next, another milestone of your company. And I think it just comes with time and, and experience and, and having a lot of chats. And as long as, you know, you have a voracious appetite for learning. And I think there's this quote, be a learn it all, not know it all that I think the CEO of HubSpot says. And I think as long as I follow that mindset, it's helped kind of put those paranoid thoughts to bed. If you think of one quality that great founders have, what would that be? Good question. I think probably the most important quality when it comes to a founder is self-awareness, being able to understand what you're good at and what you are not the greatest at and you need some support with. Being able to admit those things is not just tough, but it's super beneficial. And I think the longer it takes you to do that in your organization, the further you slow your own company's progress down because you're not willing to admit, you know, certain things. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Naturally, given my past experience in sales and software sales, I was a full cycle sales rep. And so I had been kind of the, I'd gone down the SDR route. I had done some of the closing on the full cycle part and been really good at both of those things, right? I'd learned them very quickly, but just given the stage of the company we we're at, the progression kind of simmered down and didn't have the chance to do things like RevOps or build out a team or be as involved with the promotional paths of the rest of the team. And, you know, even for myself, it took a while for myself to admit those things and actually bring on a sales advisor to help us with that progress, to be honest and say, hey, I can do a couple of these things really well, but there are other things that if we just had someone who had been there, done that, as an advisor, 
they would be able to accelerate that progression. And so I think having that self-awareness really is key for founders because it's going to help you leapfrog your own progress. And it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. But I always say like, if you're not uncomfortable, you know, you're not making growth, right? Whether that's personal or professional. And so, you know, every single week, every single month, I try to strive for a little bit of being uncomfortable because if I'm not, I know that things are, are moving too slow or they're not progressing in the right direction. And, you know, in the moment, it feels like this is something that you don't want to be a part of. But when you look back in, you know, a quarter or in a year, you're like, wow, look at all the progress that we made because I myself as a founder decided to be more self-aware and push myself to these uncomfortable situations and take that leap of faith. Phineas, these were uh, great answers. Thank you for being part of our show. How can people reach you and what's next for Viva? Yeah, people can reach me either on LinkedIn or on email. If you look up Phineas Tatar, T-A-T-A-R, on LinkedIn or Phineas at Viva. Phineas at execviva.com is my email. And I think what's next for Viva, every time we hit a new milestone, I feel like we think that was kind of like the end point, but then we reach it and we see that it's just the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to go. So I think for us, you know, 2023 is really about doubling down on a lot of our existing efforts and really growing out our sales and marketing team. And I think uh, hopefully a lot more folks will be hearing and seeing about Viva much more front and center on LinkedIn, on Twitter and a bunch of other mediums. And, you know, if there's anything that, you know, any of the founders of this podcast are listening to that you're interested in learning about as we think about, you know, what kind of content to be publishing, please let me know. I'd love to hear it and uh, open to chat about all things productivity. Again, Phineas at execviva.com. Thank you very much, Phineas, for coming on the show. We wish you the best of luck. Awesome. Thank you, Hadi. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.